Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, Tim's asked me to speak on just one verse today, so it shouldn't be terribly long, right? But, but hold on. Galatians chapter 2 in verse 20, if you want to turn there, a familiar text, and it's a wonderful text. And I want to thank, again, the music, uh, the worship team up here. Uh, the music just worked, fit perfectly with what we're actually going to be preaching on again today. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Yesterday, uh, my family and I went down to Washington, D.C., um, and we actually went down. I don't know if you've ever been down to the Holocaust Museum, and it was uh, very sobering. It was a, we enjoyed our time, but it was a very sobering time. But on our way down, um, I mean, I've heard a false advertisement before, but this one seemed to be way over the top. We're driving down the road, and a Coke truck goes by. I mean, Coke. I mean, is there anything redeemable in Coke? I mean, you may like Coke, but let's face it, folks, you drink it not for health. You drink it just because you like it, right? So this Coke truck goes by, and it just was a beautiful picture of the Coke bottle, and it said, no artificial flavors and no preservatives. And that truck went zooming by, and what it communicated to us is, Coke is a wonderful thing to drink. There's nothing bad in it. Drink it, and you'll be fine. I mean, that's what I was saying. Now, whether you like Coke or not, you just can't make an argument that Coke's good for you. You know, it's just, it's just kind of impossible. And my wife and I saw it, and we said to ourselves, that is the strangest thing. But that's what marketers do, don't they? It's what religion often does too, doesn't it? I mean, every religion will tell you that you can have life with God however God is defined. Non-Christian religions tell you that. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, right? And even those that claim to be quote-unquote Christian will tell you that they're all about life with God. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you find that they add all kinds of things. Works and ritual, and all kinds of things. That, that's not only a problem in our day, folks. It was a problem in the first century for, for a very different reason. You see, when you come to Galatians chapter 2, um, you've got to understand, it's not, we're not where they are, although we still have the same kinds of problems. But in their day, Judaism was God's means through which the Messiah would come. We all know that, right? But the problem in the early church is they just kind of assumed that to be a Christian means you had to be a Jewish Christian. Yeah, you had to come in through Judaism. And, and, and very, very early, the church figured out that's not the way it is, is it? You can be a Gentile, and it's all about Jesus. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to come to Christianity through Judaism. Well, in Galatians chapter 2, as, we, as we're coming down to the verse before us, although the apostles knew that, there was still a whole group of individuals in the first century that were saying, no, 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 no. You've got to add to this Christian stuff, Jesus. You've got to add Judaism to it. Just like in our day, people want to add all kinds of stuff. And what's happening in chapter 2, dear Peter, who's already had this Acts 10 experience in which he's gone up and he's found this 
Gentile centurion can come to faith in Christ and doesn't need to do it through Judaism. Peter knows that. Peter believes that. Peter has communicated that. But he's up in Antioch and he's eating with the, he's eating with the Gentiles. Now having a grand old time. The problem is there's some Jews that don't believe you can eat. If you're a Jew, you can't eat with Gentiles. So for whatever reason, this message gets to Peter from Jerusalem. That, look, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to keep these separate because they're Gentiles and you're a Jew and you can't mix those things. Well, in Jesus, every ethnic group is to be mixed, aren't they? And, and so that's the problem Paul, Paul faces. Let me just read verses 11 down to 19. I'm going to read it and just make some comments where I want to get is verse 20 because that's the verse Tim wants me to speak on. But, but in the context, listen to what happens. Verse 11. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, there was, there was a lost Jewish group that said, if we find you as a Jew with those Gentiles, we're going to create all kinds of problems for Christianity. So Peter felt, well, then maybe what I should do is separate myself from the Gentiles, even though I know I can eat with them, but I think I'll separate myself from them because ultimately I think it'll be better. And they'll understand, and it's just for a period of time. We don't want to offend the Jews. That's how he's thinking. It's very pragmatic. And Paul was saying... Peter, you can't do that. Peter, for whatever pragmatic reason you think it might ultimately be better for everybody, you can't do that. Because when you do that, you make a statement that the gospel is not only about Christ. It's about Christ plus something. And Peter wasn't thinking all that through. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter. So that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's it at the end of the day, isn't it, folks? The gospel was being impacted. I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? You know what he's saying? He's saying about Peter. The mere fact that you are with Gentiles and eating with them, you're making the statement that you don't have to be about all the Jewish dietary laws and all the ritual and all the... Peter, you're already living like that. Now, come on, think about it. Why, if you know that, are you now all of a sudden saying, well, now you've got to become Jewish? Come on, Peter. For whatever reason, you, you know better. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles, sinners. And he's saying, okay, Peter, let's use your lingo or the lingo people. Say, we're Jews and we're not like Gentile pagans. Okay, let, let's, let's talk about that. Verse 16. Yet we know, P Peter, you and I know, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a pagan. The only answer to the problem of sin is Christ and nothing else. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, Peter, you and me, Peter, the Jews, remember, Peter? 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter, when you don't eat with the Gentiles, you're saying Christ is not good enough. Verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Paul's saying, you know what he's saying? He's saying, Peter, it doesn't matter what the other Jews say about us. They can call us sinners because we're eating with those Gentiles. And if that's the case, are we saying then that Christ is all about sin? May it never be because Christ is all about victory over sin. Just, he just comes right at it. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul says, all my life, I lived as a Jew believing I could do it on my own. And if I go back to Judaism and believe it is the means through which you have a relationship with God, then I will become the ultimate transgressor because the fulfillment of all of that is Jesus. And if I then walk away and go back to this, I deny Him. And that makes me the worst of transgressors. For through the law, verse 19, I died to the law. I'm no longer under the old covenant, Mosaic law covenant. I'm not. I died to all that. Why? Why? Look at this, folks, the end of verse 19. It's critical because it's a setup for verse 20. So that I might live to God. You know what Paul says? There is a true spirituality. There is actually the ability to live to God. For all of your life to be oriented to Him in such a way that when you stand before Him, He says, yes, that's what I want for humanity. And Paul says, if I go back here, I lose that. What is life to God all about? And that's verse 20. What's he say? It's a familiar text. It's a wonderful text. This is the text. This is true spirituality. It is nothing else. It is this and this alone. Paul says, the basis of true spirituality in verse 20, here it is. I've been crucified with Christ. We sang about it today, didn't we? Um, think about the imagery that, that, that Paul uses here. Um, the term crucified with Christ is used one other time. Let me say it like this. Paul's writing the book of Galatians. It's th- track with me here. Paul's writing the book of Galatians in about 49 AD. Okay? It's after his first missionary journey, about 49 AD. In 57, he's going to write another book by the name, by, called the book of Romans that we know as the book of Romans. He's going to write it right before he goes to Jerusalem. So it's about... But eight years. Then about another five years later, he's going to write a whole bunch of prison epistles. Philippians, Ephesians, and all that kind of stuff. So we've got Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians. And here's one of the things you'll find, folks. It doesn't matter where you're reading in Paul. It's all the same. He is absolutely consumed with Christ 
wherever you, wherever you find Paul. So here he is in 49 AD, putting down these notes. He's going to write this letter to Galatians, and he's gone down to Jerusalem because they got this big meeting in Acts 15 he's got to deal with. And it's going to be a big, tough meeting. And he sends this letter off, and he sends it off. He says, you know what? I want you to know something. True spirituality means there was this time in the past in which I was crucified with Christ. Everything he did on the cross of Calvary is applied to me. All of my sins, the debt paid to God, the appeasement of God, the turning away of the wrath of God, the reconciliation to God, all of that, all of that is mine because I've been crucified with Christ. It's my position. And and if you are a believer here today, you can declare the reason I live to God, the reason I can say I have true spirituality, it's not about anything I've done. It's that I've been crucified with Christ. Everything he's done on the cross has been applied to me. Wow, Paul. That's what it's all about? So it's not about Judaism? It's not about Judaism. It's not about Buddhism. It's not about Hinduism. It's not about some strange form of Christianity or religiosity. It's about none of that. It's about being crucified with Christ. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, true spirituality starts with Jesus. That's it, plain and simple. Paul's declaration, I've been crucified with Christ. And then he's going to go on to say, and let me tell you how that's changed my life. Let me, let me tell you the consequences, the results of that. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. And we sang about this again today. But Christ who lives in me. Now, I want you to think about it a second. Now, when Paul says, it's no longer I who live, what's he saying? Like, you know, like um, some alien came along and like, doo, 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 took his soul. I mean, is that the point? Now, let me tell you what he's saying. Because Paul's story is our story. There was a time in my life when I was under the wrath of God, I was a chip off the old block. And the old block was Adam. And I was in Adam. I was born a sinner. I chose to sin. It's all that stuff. And and Paul says, look, that's where I used to live. And he says, I no longer live there. Before, that's where I lived all. And you know what? If you know Christ is your Savior, you know there was a time in your life when you lived there. And when you come to faith in Christ, you can literally say, you know what? I no longer live there. I'm no longer in Adam. I I mean, I'm I'm a son of Adam. But I'm no longer under his regime. I'm, I'm no longer so bound to sin that that's all I can do. No. I no longer live because I'm under a brand new regime. It's the regime of Christ. It's Romans chapter 5. And here's what I love about this text. It doesn't just say, I'm under Christ, does it? I no longer live, but what? Christ lives where? In me. Can you please explain all that to me? 
What does it mean for the living Lord of the universe who has died for me to be so intimately involved in my life that he says, let's don't talk just about you being under me and all that stuff and I'm over you. I'm in you. So the life I now live, I live through Christ. Isn't that unbelievable? For just a second, I want you to notice uh, another passage that kind of unpacks this. Let, let's, let's, uh, let's go over to Romans 7. Like I said, 49, Paul, Paul, just, Paul gets to the book of Romans and he, just, he can't get this stuff out of his mind. He's unpacking it in greater detail. Just great stuff. Romans chapter 7. Um, he's talking about, again, having died to the law and being alive to God. I, I want you to look down, if you would, at verse, uh, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, Romans 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. That means his death for us on the cross. That you might be joined to another. Who would that be? To Jesus. To him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. You see, when you were connected to Christ and forgiven of all your sins because... You've been, you've, you've been crucified with Christ. You were given a new life in which you could actually begin to bear fruit for God because the Spirit lives within and God has given us that Spirit. I mean, it's, just, it's a total transformation. For, and I know on a day-to-day basis we struggle with our sins and we don't always feel that way, do we? Like, is that, you know, as a Christian, you feel like, yeah, I have total victory over all sin. No, none of us do. We're all in pro- process and, and progressing. Of course, it's all true. But we have a new potential because we're in Christ. Do you see? And Paul says, this Christ is, is in me. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, which he writes in 62 AD, a little bit, little bit later, Paul is um, talking to families. He's talking about the husband-wife relationship. He's talking about the husband being the loving leader and the wife being the completer and submissive and and all that kind of good stuff. Okay, great, great text. And what's really interesting to me when you read Ephesians chapter 5, I used to think years ago that that the way Ephesians 5 worked was something like this. Paul was sitting around saying, you know, husband-wife relationship, marriage, one, always, that's great, oneness, they're married. Man, I kind of need an illustration for that. Let me think Oh, 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 it's kind of like Christ in the church. Yeah, that's it. You know, Christ in the church, one. Okay. So anyway, is that how it works in Ephesians 5? Actually, it's the flip-flop. When Paul comes to Ephesians 5, you know what he says the great reality is of all realities? That we are one with Jesus Christ. I mean, it is just, it's like this. You just can't separate it. And oh, by the way, Marriage becomes a picture of that. You see, it, it works the opposite direction. Because Paul wants us to realize that to be a Christian is to be like this with Jesus. And it, 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 this Jesus, who is the loving leader over us, absolutely true, absolutely true, is also the one who is so involved with us and so connected to us that you can literally say, it is Christ in me. Isn't that unbelievable? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
Paul is uh, challenging the believers. Some in, in Corinth apparently are going and thinking, well, I guess is, uh, I can go and, and because the body, you know, men will be men, boys will be boys. I, I suppose that means you can sometimes kind of go and sleep around with a local, local prostitute. And, of course, Paul comes on the scene and says, what are you doing? Like, come on. And he makes a whole series of arguments. But in the midst of that argument in 1 Corinthians 6, one of the things he says is, hey, 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 how can you take a member of Christ and take that person, a Christian who is just intricately like this with Jesus, and drag Christ into a relationship where you're sleeping with a prostitute and sinning before God? Like, how do you do that? And the argument is, you and Jesus are like this. Let me show you one other verse. And this is another one that just takes me back. Ephesians chapter 3. Would you mind flipping over there for just a second? Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is praying. And he's praying that they would know the power of the Spirit in their lives in this wonderful prayer that begins in verse 14. And, and he says in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 3, he says that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that, look at this folks, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Robert Munger, years ago, wrote a book called My Heart, Christ's Home. Anybody ever read that? It's a little book. It's probably 50, 60 years old, but it's, it, it's a quickie. It's about 12 pages. But Munger, Munger says, if we can just grasp the idea that Christ is always with us. Because I don't know about you. When I'm tempted, I don't know, and tempted to sin against God, I don't normally do it with like a fist up there saying, hey God, I'm going to do this. I don't care what you think. Leave me alone. I, mean, I don't know. I don't normally do that. You know what happens when I'm tempted normally? I just want to kind of forget God. I mean, I don't want to come after him. I just would rather he be on a back burner somewhere. I'll engage in whatever I'm going to engage. And when I'm done, I'll come back. But I just want to kind of think he's like, there. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's much more convenient. Because, I mean, I don't want to say, God, as you do this right now, I'm doing it as a rebel in your face. I don't like to think that way about temptation. I might much rather say, God, I'll be back in a second. But you can't. You can't do it, can you? And Munger says in his book, when Christ becomes your Lord and Savior, he lays claim to every room in your house. So he comes into the, in the, in the picture, he comes into the living room and uh, that, that's the place of fellowship and, and relationships and, 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 and he's Lord there. And he talks about the kitchen as the place of passion. And he's Lord there too. And in the book, you have the story of this guy saying, yeah, he can have every part of my house. And he gets to one point and there's a closet over in the corner. And Jesus says, I'm here to dwell, so I would like to be able to go in there too. And in the, man, in the book, the man says, Lord, uh, that is mine. I mean, you can have the living room. You can have... Uh, the kitchen, the dining room, the playroom, the basement. You can have it all. But that, 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 that one's mine. And in Munger's enactment, Jesus says, if I don't have that, I don't have you. 
You see, I'm here to dwell in the entire house. And I've often wondered, I wonder how uneasy Jesus feels in the presence of my heart. Because the text in Ephesians 3 says that Christ might dwell in your hearts. And it's not an uneasy dwelling. It's a restful kind of dwelling. Is Christ at home with you? Because he is with you. And whatever you do, you take him with you. That's the way it works. And Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, after coming out of Galatians and saying, the life I now live is a life in which it is Christ in me, which means, and he prays in Ephesians 3, oh, I just wish that the Christ who is in me would feel comfortable within me. That's what it's supposed to be. That, that's, that, it, Christianity, plain and simple, is about Christ, isn't it? That's it. And so he says, look, I've been crucified with Christ. And, and, and therefore, I submit to the Christ who is in me. He can have the whole house, no closets. He gets it all. It's his. And he ends by saying this, the end of the verse, because I know my time's running out quickly here. In the life that I now live in the flesh, because Paul says, look, I'm alive. It's me, okay? In the life I now live in the flesh. How do you live it then, Paul? says, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what's interesting to me? I, I kind of wonder when I read this, if Paul would have checked with me before he wrote it, tongue-in-cheek, I'm only kidding. I guess I wonder why he doesn't say, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or Christ or Jesus isn't it interesting he puts the word son of God in there? And I think what he's saying is this, folks. It, 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 just, it just inevitably projects me, pushes me to Philippians chapter 2. Because I think that's what he's saying. The life you now live, you live, you live the same way you were saved. You live by faith, by trust, by rest in Christ. But, but not merely Christ the Son of God. And I think the reason he's saying that is this. He's saying, you know what? In Philippians chapter 2, the Bible tells us, have this mind in you which, which, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who? Although he was in the form of God. In other words, although he was through and through totally God. He did not, he did not think that equality with God was something he had a grasp. And it means this. He did not think, okay, because we, we, we talk about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, absolutely true. They're all God, right? But one's God the Father and one's God the Son. So although he was God of God, he did not think that he had to be like the Father. Hey, why can't I be the Father and you be like the Son and you go and die for people and I get to do what you do? Is that what he did? <laughs> no, no, no. Although he was God of God, he didn't think that God the Father's role was one he had to reach out and grab and have for himself. No, he didn't do that. But instead, he emptied himself. 
And he came, not just as a servant, but as a human. And he humbled himself, not just by dying, but by dying on a cross. I mean, you know this. Did anybody walk by Golgotha when Christ was on the cross? Did anybody say, oh, praise the Lord, the Son of God is dying for the sins of the world? Did anybody say that that day? No, everybody walked by there and said, there's three criminals getting exactly what they deserve. And they kept right on going. And God of God becomes a man. And is willing to give up and to be humiliated and to die for us. And Paul says, the life I now live, I live by faith in him, the, the, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That expression, loved me and gave himself for me, found in combination one other time again in Ephesians chapter 5. He's talking to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. And what did Christ do? Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. Here's what I've often thought. <clears throat> I'm really good with this stuff on Sunday morning, aren't you? I mean, you'll go out here and say, that was, really, that was really good, man, Jesus, I love Jesus. Jesus, yeah, crucified with Jesus. Jesus is dwelling in every part, even the, even the closets, yeah, he gets the whole thing. And, 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 and Christianity is about faith, so I'm always thinking about Jesus through the week and trusting in him and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And yeah, it sounds really good. And then you go outside and you have a flat tire. Or you go home and you find out you lose your job. Or somebody you love has cancer. Or you're having problems with your kids. And a whole series of problems come into our lives. And if you're like me, you know what my first tendency is? It's the back burner, all this stuff. You know? Because life is a whole lot more complex. It's just really nice on a Sunday morning. Praise the Lord. We can sing it together. We can hear about it. We can, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you go out, life is just. But this verse means nothing if it doesn't mean that Christ meets us there, folks. Does it? This verse means that I can walk into the most darkest moment of my life and I can say, it is hard. I don't understand it. I can't find my way clear. I don't know why you're letting this into my life, God. But I know you love me. Because when I look back, I see the cross. You love me and you gave yourself for me and I know there's a future for me and I don't know I don't know why this is happening right now. But I can trust you. Because you are the great son of God who has loved me and given yourself for me. You're the one who's united me to you. You're the one that dwells within me even when I don't feel it. I tell you, folks, this text is not one for us merely to hear on a Sunday morning. It is one for us to go through Monday through Saturday and live it. And I guess what I'd ask you to do is to embrace a Christ-centered, cross-focused life with God. That's what the text is all about. 
How do you do that? Pray today, tomorrow morning, that when that event surfaces or comes back, pray and say, God, what does it mean for me to live in faith toward you in the midst of this situation right now? And remember how much you've loved me. Ask God to help you live this text out tomorrow. And, and one of the things we're going to be doing here in just a couple minutes is we're going to be meditating on the cross. You can't meditate too much upon the cross, can you? You can read the text of scriptures again on it. You can read good books where guys just kind of help you think about the cross. We can take communion together as we think again about the cross. But Christianity at its core is Christ-centered and cross-focused. That's life before God. That's what we sing about. That's what Paul talks about. And that's the way we can live. This is not abstract stuff to do on Sunday. It makes a difference on 3, uh, three o'clock on Tuesday afternoon and 4 o'clock in the morning on Thursday when you can't sleep. It's all of that. You are loved of God. Do you know that? The cross is true. Your future is secure. Christ is in you. Don't forget it. Live it. Experience it. Rejoice over it. Let's pray.